happy Valentine's Day again, everyone. We're glad you've joined us today. We uh, have been looking at how we can find peace, uh, God's peace, in the middle of the pressure of life. And our guide has been the book of Philippians, four chapters in the New Testament. Today we begin chapter three. We're going to look particularly at uh, the pressure that we all fa- feel or face to live a life that is truly profitable. When I worked in advertising, it was almost three decades ago now, it was my responsibility to review the monthly profit and loss statement of the company. I reviewed this with the owner, and we just put a kind of a sample up here. It's a bunch of zeros, so you don't get caught up in the numbers. But this is what a profit and loss statement, a basic, simple one, looks like. You've got your income, and then you've got your expenses. And what I would always do whenever I got the report in advance of the meeting, uh, I would turn to the last page of the report and look at the very last number at the bottom of the page. That number is called the bottom line. And the bottom line is the most important number on the profit and loss statement because that number would let me know whether or not we had made money in the previous month or not as a business, whether we were profitable or whether we were incurring a loss. Now, if that number was positive, I I knew that the meeting was going to be rather enjoyable. If the number uh, had a parenthesis around it indicating a loss, I knew that my life was about to have a bunch of added pressure to it. And so I, I, I would really look at these numbers every month and and kind of determine uh, how the month would go based on uh, the profit and loss statement. Now, the reason that there was so much pressure uh, for me as the president of this agency was that we were in business to not just to pass time or to hone or practice our accounting skills. We were in business like any business, and that is to make a profit. Now, this bottom line approach isn't just limited to business. It's the way we look at our lives in general. I mean, we are continually evaluating ourselves and asking bottom line type questions. We, if we're married, we may ask our questions about our marriage. We may kind of look at what we're getting and what it's costing us and begin sometimes to wonder if it's really a, a profitable marriage. Or maybe we bottom line our jobs and wonder if it might be time to move on to something that's a little bit more enjoyable or profitable. Or we sometimes as parents, we look at the parenting ledger, which starts out with a whole lot of expense, and we begin to wonder you know, there's a lot of income, but we begin to wonder sometimes, especially if they're in the adolescent stage, is this really, is this investment going to pay off, and how are my children going to turn out? Now, we are bottom line thinkers because we were created to do something significant with our lives, not, not just pass time here. We were, in essence, created to, to live profitable lives, not lives that are negative or full of loss. And so, This is an interesting verse, and in light of that, that Paul says here in Philippians 3, verse 7, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's a very surprising verse in the middle of chapter 3. What Paul is doing is he's informing us that there, there was a flaw in the way that he had been doing his moral accounting. And in chapter 3 of this book in the New Testament, he, in a sense, he kind of opens up his personal books, his personal profit and loss statements, and he admits that up until this point, for his entire life, he really has been cooking the books, morally. Now, in the financial world, cooking the books is the practice of making the financial data look better than it actually is. It's called cooking the books. The most famous example of this in recent history is Enron. You might remember Enron back from 2001. Enron revealed in 2001, actually November of 2001, that it had overstated its earnings by several hundred million dollars over the previous four years. And so within one month, Enron went from being the seventh largest corporation in America to bankruptcy. 
I mean, people not only lost jobs, all kinds of money was lost, and they lost their, their future retirement savings, everything. All kinds of lives were hurt because of this. And as the investigation proceeded in the months to come, it became apparent that the reason that this company and so many in this company had colluded together to cook the books was because of the tremendous pressure that they all felt to look profitable. And when the numbers actually began to go down, they, they couldn't accept the fact that they were going to have to report losses, and so they kept finding little different ways to, to cook the books, to make things look better than they actually were. And the same kind of thing happens to us morally. We do the same kind of thing. A great deal of pressure in life comes from our attempts to make ourselves look better than we really are, to cook the moral books. And we do this by adding things to our life that other people might be impressed with, but in the end, that they just have no value. And the truth eventually comes out, whether it's financial accounting or whether it's moral accounting, it eventually comes out, either in this life or in the life to come when we stand before God and give an account of ourselves, everything we've said and everything we've done. And in that day, it won't matter what others thought of you. It won't matter how you've been able to impress other people with your, your presentations or your image of how good or good you are. It won't matter at that day what other people thought or even what you thought of yourself. What will matter for all of us at that day is we will be evaluated by God. It'll be what he thinks. It will be his accounting standards that matter at that point. And God wants to prevent kind of a personal Enron from happening to us. He doesn't want us to, under the pressure of moral performance, try to cook the books and then and, and one day suddenly have a, a huge personal collapse. Every year here at Seabreeze, we hire a, a CPA firm, an outside firm, to come in and review our financials from the previous year. And I absolutely love this process because whenever it's complete and we get the report from the CPA firm, it confirms that what we are dealing with from a financial standpoint are actual facts. These aren't just reports that we've made mistakes on and we're, we're going forward kind of blind. We, we know that these now are accurate. They, they've been certified by an outside CPA firm. So today, I thought what we'd do is we'd We'd kind of do that process. Now, don't get nervous. We're not going to ask anyone to stand up on stage and give them a moral accounting of their life. But I want to, want to walk through these verses in chapter 3 for all of us and kind of conduct a, a sort of a moral audit and identify particularly two of the most common mistakes that we make when it comes to moral accounting, when it comes to our, our own moral profit and loss statement. So here, are the, the, the first of the two most common mistakes is this one. We use the wrong moral currency. We use the wrong moral currency. When that CPA firm looks over our financials here at the church, there is a key assumption behind the numbers in all of the columns. And the assumption is that all of these numbers represent American dollars. That's an operating assumption whenever uh, they're doing the uh, accounting for us. Now, that's important to recognize because there are a lot of other different kinds of currencies. And the value of an American dollar is very different than, say, for example, the value of a Russian ruble right now. Right now, one American dollar equals 79 Russian rubles. The number looks the same, but the symbol for the currency and the currency itself is very, very different. So you need to be sure that you're, you're talking about the same currency when you do any kind of, of accounting. So, for example, a multinational corporation that draws revenue from many different countries and therefore many different currencies, when they do their accounting, they have to convert those currencies and those numbers into the currency of the country that they are based in. 
in order for those numbers to, to make any sense. Because if you're adding rubles and dollars and you bottom line that, your, your, your total is going to be completely inaccurate. It's going to be flawed. Now, this challenge also occurs in moral accounting. And the reason is because there's all kinds of different ideas about what is right and what is wrong out there. There's lots of different moral currencies, lots of different lists about if you do this, God will like you. If you don't do this, God won't like you. And so there's all different ideas out there, all different kinds of currencies. And so this is a challenge when we, we come to the, the point of, so, so what do I need to do to be pleasing before God? Which currency do we choose? Which list do we start working on? Paul starts in chapter 3 of Philippians by giving us a list of the moral currency that was, was popular in his day and in his location in the world. This is what he says in verses 4 through 6, the verses just before the one we read in verse 7. He says, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What he's saying right here is, if you want to compare your profit and loss, moral profit and loss statement with, with mine, I'm sure my bottom line is better than yours. And then he, he lists kind of the current currency, moral currency that was used and was popular in his day. He goes on to say, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. faultless. Now, if you don't know the moral currency of Paul's day, this list seems kind of random and confusing. But this was the moral currency for the Jewish people of that day. Paul starts out, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This was the physical indication for a Jewish male that they, in fact, belonged to God's people. They were of Jewish descent. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, Paul just wasn't any Jew. He was, as he says here, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the, the tribe of Benjamin. If you were born in the tribe of Benjamin, you were, you were considered to be kind of a, a cut above. You, you had a, not just Jewish heritage, but elite Jewish heritage. You were the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was born to one of the top tribes in all of Israel. And you see, this was a big deal back then because the operating assumption among the Jewish people was that if you belong to the people of God, the Jewish people, then that's pretty much all you needed. That, that was the big plus on the ledger that, that trumped everything else. And this was kind of the operating assumption among the people in Paul's day and time. But Paul didn't just stop there. Paul didn't just rest on his Jewish heritage and the common assumption that that's all one needed to be approved before God in the end. He didn't rest on that. He, he went on from there. He goes on and says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a group of individuals in the day that were as serious about keeping every detail of God's law as you could possibly get. They, they would comb through the Old Testament, not just for the moral principles that God had laid out, like the Ten Commandments, but they would look through all of the civil laws and all of the ceremonial laws and all of the details, the precise details that applied really to, to that time period, and they would debate about how would one precisely keep every single one of these. In fact, to be a Pharisee of the day, one of the operating requirements or the entry-level requirements is you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, that kind of cuts out a lot of people. So Paul had joined this group. He, he, he had the first five books of the Bible memorized, and he was serious about keeping every bit of God's law in the Old Testament. Then he goes on, but as for zeal, and this wasn't just an academic thing for Paul, as for zeal, persecuting the church. In fact, he didn't just study the law. He, he hunted Christians down to defend it because his understanding was the Christians 
were opposed to God's law in the Old Testament. That's not true, but that was his understanding. And so he was so zealous about God's law that anyone who stood in opposition to it, boy, he, he went after them. He hunted them down. Then he goes on, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, this is a very shocking statement. What he's saying is, if, if you want to open the books of my personal life, my moral life, you would find that I haven't broken a single law of God. Now, every, now if you look at his heart, I'm sure there were flaws and maybe some of what he said, but he, he's looking the way a Pharisee looked at things. He, he's got the rules down, and, and he's got no negatives in the other side of that ledger. That's a pretty shocking statement. And this is why Paul says, in summary, that these are the reasons why I put confidence in the flesh. These are the good deeds that I've done in my body. And therefore, I, I have tremendous confidence that when I stand before God, I'm going to be completely approved because of everything that I've done. That's why he's confident. The problem, though, and what Paul came to understand is this. This is not how God does moral accounting. That's not how God runs the P&L of individual lives. And so the wrong currency, according to what Paul is saying here in Scripture, is confidence in the flesh, which means confidence in what I do, my performance, my abilities, my, my moral um, profit and loss statement, what I do. That's the wrong currency. Now, Paul's moral currency, for the most part, is no longer in circulation. But the popular moral currencies, whatever time and whatever place, always share the same, the same theme, the, the same root. They are all based on confidence in the flesh. What that means, confidence placed in, if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then you can be confident that when you stand before God, you'll be okay. Now, confidence is the key, really, to any currency, whether it's moral currency or financial currency. For example, this right here is a $20 bill. I thought of getting a $100 bill, but I didn't want to distract you too much, okay? So this is a $20 bill, an American $20 bill. Now, what makes this bill worth $20 is what? Not, not the printing quality. I mean, it, really, this is just ink on paper, isn't it? But why do I now have your attention? And, and why, if I, why do I have this in my wallet? Well, because there's confidence in this ink on paper. The confidence is this. Whenever I present this to someone, I am confident that they will agree with me that it is also worth $20. Now, if it ever gets to the point where people decide that I don't have any confidence in this dollar, then all of a sudden the value immediately of this ink on paper begins to go down. That's really honestly the only thing that makes this worth $20 is a shared confidence in its value because its intrinsic value is just ink on paper. And so key to any currency is confidence. Let me show you another form of currency. This one here, we'll project it up on the screen so you can see it. This is not 20, this is 20,000. And honestly, this is a, a fancier looking piece of ink on paper than the American $20 bill. This is from the Bank of Ghana, as you can probably see. This, this is Ghanaian currency. It's called a CD. 20,000 of these. Now, when these were issued first in 1967, one Ghanaian CD was equal to one American dollar. It was a one-for-one one transfer. But because the Ghanaian economy is not near as strong as the American economy, people's confidence in this form of ink on paper has diminished over the years. 
By the time that I got this in 2005 when I was in Ghana, this 20,000 Ghanaian note was worth about 75 cents. So you would see people coming from market literally with suitcases of cash because that's how much it took to buy stuff. Now, this note is completely worthless because back in 2007, the Ghanaian government realized that there was no confidence in the CD anymore. So they abolished this form of currency and they formed a new form of currency, unfortunately also called a CD, but it looks a little different. And so now these CDs are worth absolutely nothing. And this is the kind of thing that can happen to currency. And this is the kind of thing that, that happens to all flesh-based moral currencies. You see, what we do is we make up a, a list of good deeds, and we think that if we do them, God will accept them as payment in full for all of the wrong that we've done. I mean, our goal when we do moral accounting is to make more positive entries than negative entries. And our hope is that by the time we stand before God, as long as there's not a parenthesis around our life, as long, as long as we've done more good than bad, then God will accept our deeds, our moral currency, as complete compensation for all the wrong that we've done. That's kind of the operating assumption. In fact, this is the way religions work. This is the operating assumption behind religions. For the Hindu, for example, the law of karma is the currency. And the law of karma is really about tipping the, the moral scale to the good so that you can reincarnate into higher and higher and higher life forms until eventually you get to the highest form of life and you cease to exist as, a, as an individual being. And you're suddenly taken into what they refer to as nirvana. You reach nirvana. The five pillars of Islam are activities like fasting and praying and pilgrimage that will qualify you for paradise. You do these things, different currency, but same basic idea. You do this, then you can have confidence that before God, you will be accepted in the end. The Eightfold Path of Enlightenment for the Buddhist is really a defined path based on the law of karma because Buddhism came out of Hinduism historically. And even if you're not a religious person, which increasingly people move away from all religious approaches, even if you're not a religious person, you've got a list of good things and bad things. You, in a sense, have kind of printed your own currency, things that you define as good and bad. Now, there's different lists, but it's really all one basic idea behind the currencies. The confidence, which is what's behind all currency, the confidence is in the flesh, what you do. You're confident that if you do enough, God will approve of you. The problem is that the deeds of the flesh, what we do in this world, are not valid in heaven. It's like trying to go down to the grocery store and giving someone this bill and expecting to get anything in return. It's like trying to use CDs to buy something here. And the reason for this is because the currency of heaven is not our moral performance. The currency of heaven is holiness. That's the currency of heaven. Now, we can do some good deeds here, and, and that's great. And people are impressed, and we're impressed with ourselves. But in heaven, it's just ink on paper. It's just ink on paper. The reason is because sin taints every, every good deed that we do and makes that good deed worth nothing in heaven. Because heaven is holiness, absolute righteousness. There can be no sin in heaven. 
Now, the problem that we tend to have with this is that there are people all over the world at varying levels of seriousness, but there's a lot of people that are really serious about doing whatever their moral list is. They're dedicating their entire lives to doing what is right by their religion or what is right by their own thoughts of what is right under the operating assumption that this will gain approval before God. And so if there's all kinds of people all over the world working so hard, shouldn't that count for something? Well, the problem is currencies are not about being fair. Currencies are about reflecting real value. In Ghana, there are people that have spent their entire lives working for these. And then in a short period of time, they lost everything. They lost everything. Because what they had put their confidence in turned out to be worthless. Currencies tell the truth, eventually. And it will be a tremendous shock for a large number of people who have been working on whatever their moral currency is to discover that in the end, it doesn't transfer to heaven. The deeds of the flesh don't count. You know, the shock of the people in Ghana losing all of their life savings, the same thing is happening now in Venezuela. People losing everything. That's a tremendous shock. But that kind of shock will be nothing compared to the shock when people stand before God with their moral currency, however big their pile is, and discover that, that don't spend here. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't count here. So the wrong currency is confidence in the flesh. The right currency is faith in Christ. This is what Paul says in verses 7 through 9. We read verse 7, but let's read the rest of it now. So Paul says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying he realized that, in essence, he's been working for something that has no value. He's been working for ink on paper. And when he used to add all these things up and feel good about himself, now he says, I add it all up and I realize that it does not, in fact, equal a moral profit, but, in, but a moral loss. But he doesn't just stop there with that realization. He goes on to say, now, what, here's what really is profitable. What is more, he says, is I consider everything a loss, Every Every other thing, every other effort that I did to prove myself before God, I, I realized it's, it was tainted. It has no value in the end. Everything's a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's not saying that these deeds were bad, that they were wrong. Some of them were, but not all of them. But he said when you compare that to the, to the value, to the profit of knowing Jesus Christ, they're, they're like a negative. They're a loss. So what's so great about knowing Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is the only way the currency of heaven can ever be transferred into anyone's moral account here on earth. You know, the currency of heaven is holiness, also known as righteousness, doing what's right before God. And like any transfer, whether it's a financial transfer or moral transfer, there are always two sides to the exchange. There's the one that's sending the resources, and there's the one that's receiving the resources. Righteousness, holiness, is transferred to earth, was transferred to earth by God himself. 
in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God in flesh. This was a delivery that only God himself could make. He was righteous, absolutely no sin. Now, he didn't just bring a little bit of holiness, a little bit of righteousness. He was God. He brought an unlimited supply of righteousness. What this means is that there is enough holiness in Jesus to pay for every sin committed by every person throughout all of human history. But this unlimited supply of righteousness does no good until it's accepted, until it's transferred, and it's received by faith. And that brings us now to the second common mistake when it comes to moral P&L statements, profit and loss statements. The first is we use the wrong currency, the currency of if I do this, then God will be okay with me. That's the wrong currency. The second mistake, though, is we remove knowledge from faith. We have an inaccurate understanding of what the key transaction is that allows the righteousness of God himself to be credited to our personal moral account. We've developed kind of a flawed understanding of faith, and we do it by, by pulling knowledge out of faith. Let me explain what I mean by this. Jesus Christ is the entry that will matter most in our moral ledgers. But there are two parts to that entry. Part number one is faith in Christ, and part number two is knowledge in, of Christ. Faith in Christ and knowledge of Christ. That's why you see these two terms over and over again throughout this passage. Paul talks about knowing Christ, and he also talks about having faith in Christ. They are really two sides to the same coin. The coin is forming a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, faith and knowledge are required for any relationship whether it's a relationship between people or a relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are the two sides of any relationship coin. For example, when my wife and I decided to get married, it was a huge step of faith, just like any of you that are married or have been married. It's a huge step of faith because what you're doing is you're, you're attaching your future to someone that you don't know exactly what they're going to be like in the future. It's a, it's a step of faith. Any relationship is a step of faith, but a marriage is a huge step of faith. So why did we take the risk of attaching our futures to each other? Why did we take that step of faith? Well, it was based on our knowledge of each other. We, there were emotions involved, definitely, but if it was just emotions, it would have been a foolish step. We had spent the better part of two years dating and getting to know each other. Did we know everything about each other? No, that would have been impossible. But we knew enough to take that step of faith. We knew enough. It's the same with Christ. Both are needed to attach your future to him. You need to, to know enough about him to take a step of faith and then trust him with your future. But you can't ever know enough to where you're never going to need any faith. It's just like a relationship. It is a relationship. You need to trust him. And there are, there are two ways that we tend to separate knowledge from faith. The first is faith without prior knowledge. People take steps of faith without prior knowledge, and it's just a weak step. What I mean by this is they, they take kind of an emotional approach to faith. And so their faith in Jesus is, is really kind of based on a, an emotional feeling of the moment. And when the emotion fades, then their faith fades. It's weak. Notice the order of the previous verses. What it says first is knowing Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And then he talks about faith in Christ. Many think of faith as kind of a an emotional, spiritual, emotional feeling that you need to wait, you know, for it to kind of descend on you. I've often had people refer to me as like, oh, I wish I had faith like you did, almost like it's just 
kind of a floating cloud that they've missed, and, and they would hope that it would come visit them, and it hasn't yet. Kind of like an emotional thing. That they just kind of wait, or they, you have to crank it up. You have to really rev yourself up on the inside emotionally and spiritually to really take this step of faith. But faith in Christ is not that. Faith in Christ is simply a rational decision to agree with God's moral audit of your life and then put your confidence in Christ for the future. That's what it means. It's not anything more complicated than that. Now, you can't know everything about everyone, whether it's Jesus Christ or someone else. But you can know enough. You can know enough about Jesus to put your faith in them, just like you can know enough about some people to put your faith in them. So if you're not ready to trust Jesus, if you're not ready to put your faith in Jesus, one possibility is it could be that you just need to take some time to get to know him. Maybe you've never sat down and read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the stories in the New Testament that tell you the story of Jesus Christ. So you, you form some opinions, you've heard some things, but you've never taken the time to try to get to know him yourself. Maybe you need to do that. Talk to some other people, get some questions answered. But faith without prior knowledge is weak. Secondly, faith without future knowledge is shallow. Sometimes people decide to make a decision of faith in Christ, and then they stop there. They assume that, okay, now my moral, my moral account is in the plus category, and the transaction has taken place, and, and there's really nothing else that I need to do. So they knew enough about Christ to make a step of faith, and then their knowledge of Christ stops. They don't want to know any more. They don't want to grow anymore. They don't want to have any more life experience as they trust Jesus through life. And that's, that's shallow. See, it's not enough just to place your faith in Christ. Paul goes on in verses 10 through 11 to explain this. He says, I, he's already said, I want to know Christ and have faith in him. Now he goes on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, what he's describing is what starts out as, as knowing and having confidence in the facts about Christ has to move on to become knowing that he really can be trusted in the flow of my life and knowing that by experience. That's because what starts out as kind of a theoretical confidence in Christ, I know enough to, in theory, trust him, has to become real where I've actually moved through periods of my life and I now know with confidence that I really can trust Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. I, I want to move on from this point. For me and my wife, it's been almost 31 years since the day that I attached my future to her and she attached her future to me. And I would say with tremendous confidence that my faith and trust in her and her trust and faith in me is light years ahead of where it was when we first got married. In fact, it's almost scary for me to think how little faith and confidence we had in each other when we got married. I mean, our confidence and our faith in each other is, is grown tremendously. How did it grow? Was it because ever since we said I do, our life has been nothing but unending bliss together? <laughs> mm. There's been some good times, but I wouldn't describe it as unending bliss. Now, the trust we have in each other has grown through what? the hard times. You see, because it's not until a relationship is really strained and the person doesn't bail on you that you can come out the other side knowing, 
All right, if they're going to stick with me in this, they're going to stick with me. You see, and confidence goes up through the hard times. It's the same with Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to say, he says, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, if the sentence just stopped there, we'd all say, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to know by experience that kind of power in my own life. But it goes on and says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Nah, I don't want to do that one. And becoming like him in his death, I definitely don't want to do that one. But see, the point is this. Before Jesus was raised from the dead, before God could display his power through Jesus Christ, the power that rose him from the dead, before that happened, Jesus had to suffer and he had to die. It wasn't until he suffered and then died that the power of the resurrection could be displayed. And it's the same with us. You can't skip over the suffering and dying part and go straight to the power part. Now, let me be clear here. Paul is not saying that he wants to do some kind of reenactment of Jesus' life, you know, like they're doing a Revolutionary War reenactment in Central Park, you know, this weekend. Paul's not talking about kind of a, a dress-up and a reenactment of the events of Christ's life. What he's talking about, he's pointing out that those who decide to follow Christ will find themselves living out the themes of Christ's life in the order in which Christ lived them. They will find themselves suffering, and they will find themselves presiding over the funerals, not only of individuals, but of important things in their life. And as, as that happens, they will see Jesus come through for them in resurrection-type power. But if they bail on Jesus when things get tough and when it looks like everything's dead that they'd hoped for, then they don't ever get to see the power. Now, I can remember days of tremendous suffering in my life. Now, honestly, it wasn't near as bad as it was for Christ when he suffered. But for me, it was pretty awful. I can remember days when I was presiding over the death, maybe of a relationship, a valued and precious relationship that now, for different reasons, was, was over. And presiding over the death of a dream that I'd worked on for decades. And it looked like, that's nah, it's done. And I, I don't forget the sadness and the hardness of that. But you see, I've also seen Jesus Christ bring life out of those death-like moments. Now, honestly, it's never been near as dramatic as the day Jesus walked out of the tomb. But you see, I wasn't there for that day. I didn't get to see that one. But I have seen the power of God at work in my life and those around me. I've seen that one with my own eyes. And because of that, my faith is much deeper than it was when I first decided to follow Jesus Christ. Because we've got history together. We've walked through life together. We've, we've walked through suffering. We've walked through death. And we've seen, I've seen the power that Jesus brings to a life. And my faith is deeper now than it was before. Faith really is the middle of a knowledge sandwich. That's what it is. Let me describe what I mean by that. First, you have to know enough about Christ to trust him. Then you have to trust him enough to really get to know him. See, it starts with knowledge and it ends with knowledge and faith is jammed in the middle. And if, if you decide that you're not going to learn enough about Jesus to ever trust him, then, then your faith is it's just going to be some emotional thing that just gets blown away when things get tough. And if you decide to just stop right here with faith, then you're never going to really know Jesus personally. It's going to be an idea. It's going to be a, a thought. 
some kind of mental transaction in your mind, but it'll be when you stand before him, it'll be one of those moments where Jesus says of himself, I, I don't know you. Have we done life together? Because I don't, I mean, I know who you are, but we don't have history, do we? We haven't done, we haven't done life together. Faith in Jesus without knowledge just isn't real faith. It's not real. So that completes our moral audit. How'd you do? Now, don't raise your hand and say anything. Just, this is for yourself. How'd you do? Are you using the right moral currency? You know, not, you're not just going through your list of things that you can do that you think that God will be majorly impressed because other people seem to be impressed with it. Faith in Christ and his righteousness is the only currency that will matter in the end. Does your faith include knowledge? Or are you waiting for some feeling about Jesus before you decide to really commit your life to him? Or are you feeling good about some decision you made some years ago, but you haven't added any knowledge of Christ to it? There's been no walking with Christ from that point forward. What I would, what I would, what I would implore you to consider is this. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled about your moral profit and loss statement. God himself is not fooled. It is better to be surprised now when you can do something about it than when you stand before him and it's too late. Now, whenever the, uh, a review is completed by the CPA firm, we, we're given a report. And usually the report contains some things, some suggestions on how we might even do a better job this year as we do our financial accounting. And the purpose of that report is not so that we could file it away, but so that we could actually do something. We could act on those. The purpose of this moral audit today has not just been a thought, but so that you might actually act on these things. So I have some next steps for you as we wrap up today. First, I would encourage you to memorize this shocking verse that the Apostle Paul says, Philippians 3, 7. By the way, these are on the back of your connection card or the bottom of the front page of the listening guide. I would encourage you to memorize this, Philippians 3, 7, where Paul says, whatever was for my profit, to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And then number two, review your moral audit. Ask yourself, just go through these categories and ask yourself, what, what is my confidence in? What is the moral currency that I'm, I'm working on? And is it correct? And then ask yourself, where's your faith? What needs to be worked on? What needs to be dealt with? And then take action based on that. And then lastly, I would encourage you to begin praying about who you can invite to Easter at Seabreeze. We've got these cards on the inside of your... Um, program uh, that Easter is actually in six weeks. I don't know if you're aware of that, but in six weeks, Easter is here. And so I would encourage you to begin praying about who you can invite, uh, the number of individuals who you can invite to Easter. Uh, by the way, on the back side of this are some activities that are coming up, ways that you can help us to prepare for Easter and some activities after Easter so that you can be aware of. Just take a look and mark your calendar with these. But I would encourage you to begin praying for us as a church and then be, begin praying about who it is that God wants you to invite. Uh, to join them this Easter. We're going to be having four services this Easter, as you can see. We're going to try a 5 p.m. Sunday service, so that'll be a lot of fun. So begin praying about that. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we thank you for the advanced notice about how our moral accounting is, is flawed. We don't want to stand before you on that day with the pile of our own currency only to realize that it's just ink on paper, that it, it does not count because of our own sin. 
And Jesus, we are so grateful that you humbled yourself to take on a body to transfer righteousness to earth, to our individual accounts. We're so grateful that you suffered and that you died so that you could be raised again and that we could know that your righteousness matters and counts in heaven. We pray that you would, you would help us to, to place our confidence not in our own deeds, not in our own moral performance, but in what you've done. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, and we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.